everyone. Welcome to Way of Life podcast, where we firmly believe that everyone picks a way in life and what way you pick is extremely important and directly affects how you live. In this podcast, we seek to interview people from all around Australia and beyond on life's most important topics. Whether you're a Christian, a skeptic, or someone with a whole heap of questions, this podcast is for you. My name is Matt, a pastor living in Brisbane, Australia. This is Way of Life podcast. G'day, Gibbo. Uh, g'day, Matt. How you going? <laughs> Good, Matt. Richard Gibson, otherwise known as Gibbo, to to your close yeah. uh, friends and people, uh, people that people you, call me Gibbo. Yeah, yeah, they call you Gibbo. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's really good to have uh, you. it's a pleasure. It, uh, I, yeah, I was hoping you'd ask me to do something, and when you did, <laughs> I thought you beauty. I got to be part of this. Yeah, that's good. Well, really appreciate you uh, coming on. It's uh, it's a really cool thing. Uh, considering my journey, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Richard, he's the principal of uh, BST, shamelessly uh, promoting that tonight. Um, so that's the college that I went to that I did theology at, and, and Richard was quite a, a key person in, in my walk uh, in theological studies and even into ministry now. So it's a really, really cool to have you on here. Um, so Richard... Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to get you to tell us a little bit about yourself, but I want to tell them a little bit about you. So Richard, he is like probably one of the most knowledgeable people in all things theology that I that I personally know. Um, you got to get out more. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he taught me uh, uh, New Testament Greek. You have a, uh, an actual uh, textbook that's um, done by Zondervan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is really cool yeah. that a lot of a lot of places get use. it at all good Christian bookstores. Yes, <laughs> um, you you taught me so much about church history, how you could actually put that all into really concise language, and you were great with exegetical uh, New Testament stuff that you did with me. But um, I wanted to ask you a question. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your journey, and why, out of all the topics, why did you pick emotion for your PhD? Yeah, I grew up in a Christian family. Mum and dad were beautiful Christian people and uh, did a uni degree, did social work, which might tell you I've got a bit of an interest in people and how they work to begin with. And, um, and while I was doing social work, I was, always get, I was also being taught the Bible uh, on campus by the chaplain. And increasingly I saw the value of the Bible, the importance of the gospel, and even though I'd chosen social work as my path, uh, I, by the time I'd finished the degree, I realised that I really wanted to be involved in gospel ministry and in mm. teaching the Bible. That's good. Uh, and went on eventually to study at a theological college. And I guess it was really there that, you know, I had access to a lot of information, great teachers, a lot of input. Uh, but that question of emotion it just kept nibbling away, I think, gnawing yeah. away at me. I, I remember when I went back to teach, there was a, another teacher there who um, we were talking one day and we are talking about our youth group days and we are talking about the things that people told us in youth group and we are talking about how uh, people said to us, like our leaders in youth group would say things like, you don't have to like people, you just have to love them. 
And I think that was a kind of well-intentioned kind of hmm. uh, to deal with difficult people. You won't get on with everybody. Not everybody's going to be your best friend. Yeah. But you have to treat them well and you have to treat them respectfully in the context of the group. So I think that's the way it was intended. But this guy, Perry, turned to me and said, what if that's how God loves us? Mm. What if God doesn't like us, but he loves us? That's and I just found that a thought. really <laughs> confronting yeah. and um, well, kind of terrifying question in some ways. The thought that God simply suffers me, mm. but he is prepared to treat me nicely, yeah. even though he doesn't really like me. I think I just... I, that that became something that I just wanted to sort out. I, so the question really began is, what does it mean that God loves me? Mm. And what's the emotional dimension of that love for me? Mm. Uh, yeah, what's the nature of that relationship? That's kind of, I think that's really where it started. And I was surrounded by all these resources. I'd done a whole lot at, at Bible college about the nature of God. And I, I think I was finding this kind of growing gap between the way the Bible presented God and the way people would talk about him when they did theology, when they yeah. did kind of self-conscious, systematic theology. Sure. I just felt like I, it didn't sound like we were talking about the same person. Yeah. So it kind of, that's where it began. And I, I kind of, when I had to do my t PhD, which you're kind of expected to do if you're going to keep on teaching at college, I thought, oh, you know, that I want to find out more about that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really interesting um, thing to bring up. So... The, you were talking about kind of the disconnect between what you would perceive God's love would be and then what, how people talked about it. Like, why do you think there's such a, a gap? Is there a gap, firstly? Is it right? And um, what is that gap? Like, why do people not perceive God probably having emotions? I think inevitably when you start trying to understand God more deeply and talk about God, you're drawn into abstract and theoretical discussion mm. of some kind. And I think that's inherently likely to lead you away from the way God reveals himself in the Bible. Um, but also part of my research was looking at to what extent early Christian thinking was influenced by the Greek philosophers mm. and to what extent did that influence distort um, the way they read the Bible. Yeah. And, I, and I guess what I did end up concluding and felt like I was discovering was that, you know, in, particularly early in Christianity, they were very much influenced by Greek categories, Greek ideas, yeah. and that kind of led them away from the way the Bible talks and what the language that the Bible ideas? uses. Sorry? What are some of those ideas? Well, uh, one of them is, you know, if God's perfect, then he can't be more God or less God tomorrow or the next day. Mm. Uh, so he can't change at all. And so once you, uh, you know, it's a really big emphasis of the way you think about God that he can't possibly change, mm. then emotion kind of comes into question. The idea that God could be angry one day but not be angry the next, yeah. be compassionate one day, not compassionate the next introduce that whole question of, well, wait on, that would involve change and for God to be perfect, he can't change. Yeah. And very quickly you lose the kind of relational nature of God yeah. when you start to think and talk like that. Yeah. So um, someone like Aristotle, one of the most influential philosophers, talked about God as the unmoved mover, mm. that God was never affected by what we do um, but was always active and he was always impacting other people and affecting people. 
but was never impacted back. Yeah. And that, people kind of regarded Aristotle as a great thinker and that became one of the basic ways that people talked about God and that was carried over into early Christian thought. Yeah. Same, similar sorts of things happened with Plato. Um, Plato's idea was that the perfect... One of, in one part of Plato, he talks about how the perfect spades, the spade that you go back to your garage and it's still sharp, it's still in one piece, it still works, it still does the job. And so therefore the ideal object is one that doesn't change. Therefore, how much more should God be? You know, so that, yeah, okay. that kind of way of thinking was really deeply embedded in, in the way the Greeks thought about these kinds of questions. Yeah. And, I, you know, the Bible was just a radical challenge to that. that yeah. Christians, early Christians, I don't think fully processed the extent to which the way that God revealed himself in the Bible and through Jesus was a direct challenge to a lot of those assumptions. Yeah. So you talk about um, one of the like people from the Reformation, John Calvin, and, and his idea of um, uh, God kind of not having emotion or this idea, I don't know if I'm quoting it right, but it's that idea that because like uh, humans in a way wrote the Bible, they're perceiving God in emotional ways because we have emotion, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he has emotion. Like yeah. how is that kind of thought permeated even culture today, do you think? Yeah, I, yeah, I've got a lot of respect for Calvin. Calvin's a great thinker, much greater thinker than I'll ever be. So, um, but I still want to engage with him critically and assess him in light of the Bible. Mm. Um, he, you can understand why people are nervous about the anger of God. Um, you know, for some people, it's the thought that, well, is God just a blown up version of us? Does God have hissy fits and lose his temper? If you've grown up with a father who loses his temper, that can be a terrifying kind of prospect that the God of the universe is like that. Mm. So you can understand why theologians have always been wary of projecting what we're like onto God. Yeah. So in thinking about um, how God reacts to us, being really careful about not simply doing a blown up version of us. Mm. So I understand that. But um, Calvin said things like, you know, when, when it says in the Bible that God is angry, we mustn't imagine that he actually experiences an, the emotion of anger. Yeah. It's the way that the Bible speaks to accommodate to our weakness so, you know, it would blow our brains if the Bible described God as he really is. Yeah. And so um, the Bible uses language we'll kind of understand. So, you know, what does it mean that God judges people and punishes them for their sin? Well, imagine what it's like when a human being gets angry and out of their anger they punish someone because they've done the wrong thing. Well, God's like that in the way that he punishes mm. and the way that he acts. Yeah. But we mustn't imagine that there's an emotion involved in that for God. You know, God is not subject to emotion yeah. the way that we're subject to emotion. Yeah. So I, I knew as I was studying the subject and as I turned to the Bible that I was up against, you know, very strong tradition in Christian thinking yeah. that struggled to find a place for yeah, God's anger, God's jealousy, God's compassion, and the, and the nature of God's love. Um, throughout Christian history, we've tended to favour one particular type of love. Mm. So a guy called C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book called The Four Loves, and he distinguished uh, agape love, which was kind of altruistic. You're just wanting to do the other person good. Then there's friendship love, 
There's an erotic love where you're attracted to the other person and that's why you treat them really well. Mm. And then there was a fourth kind of love, a kind of brotherly family love. Yeah. And Christians have tended to want to use the first type of love for God and go, God loves just because he loves. He's not attracted to people. He doesn't kind of respond to people because he's drawn to them. Um, that's made clear with Israel's history. God didn't choose Israel because she was impressive. He simply chose to bless Israel and do good to her. And so you sort of follow that logic through and you go, well, the ideal kind of love is the love that just does good to other people without ever expecting anything back. It's kind of yeah. charity love. And in the King James Version, that got translated as charity in 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, okay. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, if you read the King James Version, you'll find it doesn't say love like our modern versions it yeah. says charity because was emphasizing that that it's that kind of love that they're talking about yeah and what i found as i studied the bible carefully was that that any kind of distinction like that breaks down you know there is the parts of the old testament where god's desire for his people is kind of borders on the erotic and some of the prophets like ezekiel will describe how god is longing for his people mm. and desperately wants to be with them yeah um, so, you know, even that kind of love you wouldn't rule out. Jesus calls his disciples friends. God called Abraham his friend. So you can't kind of rule out friendship love yeah. either. So, you know, the way God loves me, I kind of ended up concluding that it's much richer than that kind of standard definition of altruistic love. Yeah. Um, but God loves me with active desire and yeah. genuine compassion. Um, and that there really is an important emotional component to the way that God relates to me. Yeah. And that, you know, that's the way God's revealed himself in the Bible. Is yeah. The way it kind of yeah, got I guess that touches on the next kind of topic is that we, you've talked a little bit about history and some of the ideas of uh, how we perceive God being emotional or not emotional or having emotion, sorry. Um, so what, what did you find in your research? Like, do you agree with what the uh, people in history have talked about? doesn't sound like it from just that initial response, but what did you, what did you actually find when you were doing your research? What I found was that the Bible actually really resists that surrounding culture. Um, so that Greek philosophical, the early Christians would have been aware of those kinds of ideas between, mm. between the Old Testament and the New Testament, those Greek philosophical ideas actually come into Jewish literature. That's one thing that I found. Mm. So the early Christians would have been well aware of those kinds of options, but they don't, they don't go down the track of denying that God um, genuinely loves us with that kind of emotional dimension. Yeah. But as a really rich account of the way God loves us. So I called my, the, the title for my PhD was As Dearly Beloved Children. And I took that from Ephesians 5.2, where it talks about us loving each other the way that God's loved us in Christ. And, you know, it's clear that it's a really deeply committed and emotional love. Mm. So... We're told to be compassionate towards each other. Um, we're even told to be jealous about God's name. And that mirrors emotions of God that are revealed in the Bible, in Scripture. Yeah. What do you kind of, you talk a little bit about it throughout the Old Testament, how basically you can't really understand a lot of uh, the Old Testament, Israel's history without 
actually perceiving him, uh, God actually as in, in having emotion? Like what did you find there? I, when I was reading your stuff, I found that really interesting. Yeah. How much stuff kind of came to the surface once you were kind of looking for it. So what did you yeah, find? I, I think I started out, I, I started out, um, before I'd really done the work, I, I sort of started out suspecting that I might find that the poetic parts of the Bible talk in those terms about God's jealousy and anger and compassion and that kind of thing. Um, and that, and maybe the wildly prophetic parts, you know, the apocalyptic literature that you get in parts of Daniel and parts mm. of Ezekiel, maybe that's where this language is concentrated. And so you've got to be careful not to take it too seriously as a literal description of God. Yeah. But what I, what I discovered was that the whole story of the Bible holds together around um, these descriptions of the way God relates to people. Mm. So when, you know, the historical books, the Chronicler um, records Israel's history, and when they come to explain the fall of Babylon, um, uh, the fall to Babylon, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, um, they, they talk in terms of, you know, God showed compassion, sent the prophets, Israel sinned, God showed compassion, he sent the prophets, and then eventually when it had all got too much and he'd reached his limit, then he got angry with a fierce anger and he judged Israel. Yeah. So when they're historic, the authors who are kind of recording the history of Israel, when they're explaining an historical event, they have to explain it in those kinds of terms. Yeah. How do you how do you explain God seemingly going against all of His promises and bringing judgment down on His chosen people and on the chosen city of Jerusalem? And the historical authors go, "We only way you can understand that is, you know, God was so angry with Israel because of her sin. In His righteous judgment, mm. um, He reached His limit and so was willing to." judge the nation in that way. Yeah. So what do you think then, I guess, what, how does um, God having emotion actually impact uh, how we think and how does thinking he doesn't, whether you consciously think that or not, how does that affect us, do you reckon? Yeah. Uh, when, I, uh, when, I, when I sort of was doing my digging in the early Christian thinkers, I came across a guy called Clement of Alexandria, and um, I kind of read through him and I found this really interesting passage where um, he, he, he was really impressed by the Stoic philosophers. They were the Greek philosophers who in their world were regarded as the ethical experts. Mm. And they reckoned that there, you should, the, the wise person would remove all emotion. The ideal wise person has no emotion. They wanted people to be completely free to do the right thing and to do their duty. And so there was no place for emotion because emotion might bias you in some way. So the famous Stoic story was a Stoic philosopher was out walking with some friends and his servant ran up to him and said, your two-year-old just drowned in the river. Your two-year-old son just drowned in the river. And the Stoic philosopher responded by saying, I always knew that he was mortal and kept on going with what he was doing. Jeez. <laughs> And that, you know, obviously that gets told as a kind of description of how callous they could be. But yeah. that was regarded as kind of the ethical ideal, to not yeah. be um, involved in people. To grieve over someone you love was regarded as a bit of a mental illness by the Stoics, that you were, 
you are evaluating another person as being really valuable to your well-being when that's simply not true. Mm. The existence or non-existence of that person doesn't prevent you um, from doing your duty or help you to do your duty. Yeah. And the crucial thing is to do your duty. Now, you know, there were parts of Greek philosophy that realised that was too severe and too strict, but there really was a bias against emotion and a, a desire to kind of remove emotion altogether. Yeah. So this early Christian guy, Clement, really, I think he wanted to outdo the Stoics. I think he wanted to commend Christianity to people, a bit like you, wanting to do apologetic issues and yeah. show people that Christianity is a really good approach to life. And he, he, he wanted to outdo the Stoics. So yeah. he went, you know, God, there's absolutely no emotion. In Jesus, there's absolutely no emotion. The uh, disciple of Jesus will not experience any emotion whatsoever, not even the emotions that the Stoics accept. And he just went just hardcore. Full extreme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it's obvious what he was trying to do. He was yeah. trying to outdo the Stoics at, yeah. at what they... Yeah, you know, the way they earn their reputation. Christians can be beaten by the Stoics. Yeah, we can be better than them. Yeah. And I, I think his instinct just was to go in the wrong direction. Yeah. Went in the opposite direction that he should have. What do you think that kind of brought about, though? Well, what that means, you know, you put a God, you put an, uh, uh, a God with no emotion, no compassion, no none of that at the centre of your universe, then when Jesus is incarnate, you have to argue that Jesus is free of emotion. Then when mm. you're talking about ideal disciples, then will be free of emotion. So you really remove emotion from the universe. Yeah. Um, and that, that's got lots of implications for how we treat each other. Yeah. And I, I do think it shaped our culture. I do think, um, I do think there's a kind of aversion to emotion, a fear of emotion. Mm. Um, I know my mother was a bit like that. My mother was raised in that kind of way. Yeah. I remember overhearing my mother talking to a friend who and mum saying, you know, when my sister and my brother died, I didn't really grieve them properly because we were taught that you put your emotions, you put your own emotions to one side so you can serve other people. Mm. And what I was discovering in all my research is that actually grief profoundly connects us with other people. Definitely. And um, allows us to relate deeply to people when they're suffering. I remember taking a funeral for a young girl. She lived just across the street from us. And she was only 18 at the time. And uh, she and her boyfriend were racing around the back streets of a suburb nearby where we were living and ploughed into a telegraph pole and Juliet was killed, boyfriend was killed. It's mm. one of the hardest funerals I've ever had to take. And um, just as I was about to lead the funeral, um, the... Uh, funeral people came to me and said, you can't take this funeral unless you've viewed the body. What? And I went, I reckon I can. <laughs> no, really, I think I can. <laughs> and they went, no, you've really got to see the body. You've got to view the body before you can take this funeral. And I kind of went, oh, okay, if you think so. Um, now, this was a girl that had been our neighbour across the street. I'd had her in youth group. Yeah. And um, they tried to put a lot of makeup on her body, but you could tell where her body had been broken and mm. stuff. And uh, it meant that I just, I couldn't really cope very well with taking the funeral. I um, really struggled to kind of say my words. I sobbed through the middle of it. And as it was coming to a close, I just thought, oh, I've, I've really let these people down. I, um, you know, I was meant to be a professional and they got me to do this, to hold the thing together. 
and I was failed miserably. And afterwards, her parents like hugged me and kind of hugged the life out of me mm. and would continue to do that for years afterwards whenever they saw me. Mm. And I think for them, the fact that I was so clearly affected, mm. so deeply grieved by the loss of their daughter, yeah. that that created a profound connection. Mm. And yeah, that's what I was discovering in the Bible, you know, the way Jesus responds to the death of Lazarus at the tomb. Um, or the compassion that Jesus has on the widow who's lost her only son in Luke 7. You know, magnificent story, but Jesus is deeply affected when he sees the funeral procession yeah. and raises the son um, as a result. And then Paul, you know, in the letter to 2 Corinthians, which is one of my favourite parts of the Bible for all of this stuff, um, the Apostle Paul openly admits that he's wept over the broken relationship with the Corinthians. So what I was finding in the, in the philosophical stuff and even in the early Christian stuff, mm. they were going, there's really not a lot of place for grief. Grief's something we've got to be really trying to avoid. We don't mm. want to get too attached. And on the other hand, I'm finding in the Bible that Jesus is deeply grieved, even when he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, yeah. um, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, one of the standard arguments is you, you want to be free of emotion or you don't want to be too affected by emotion because it stops you from doing your duty stops you from doing what you've really got to do. Gets in the way of progress. I hear, you know, I football commentators say it all the time. They've got to get the emotion out of this. Whereas you watch Jesus at Lazarus's tomb and he couldn't be more deeply affected. Mm. But he goes straight ahead and raises him from the dead. Yeah. So Jesus shows you what the ideal human being can be like where he's fully emotional, deeply affected and responsive to people's pain. Mm. But then... Um, uh, doesn't stop him being able to do what he needs to do and show his power. Yeah. So, you know, one of the biggest implications is for our relationship with God and Jesus and our prayers and what we feel we can confess to God or, or take to God. Uh, it's a huge difference if you think Jesus is a compassionate and tender-hearted high priest representing you to God mm. or whether you think he's all-powerful, lacking in emotion. I think that really affects. Oh, for sure. So that's where I think the fallout comes. So this is kind of the perception of if God isn't actually loving or compassionate, then it's it's hard to really genuinely feel that and in a way it would affect how you, in my mind, it would affect how you actually approach other people too. Um, yeah, yeah. I so you, I, was, yeah. I was really, by the time I finished, I was really overwhelmed by the tender-heartedness of God mm. and how that comes through all through Israel's history and you see it in Jesus, and you see it at the cross too. You know, the cross is kind of the collision of God's righteous anger and his um, tender-hearted compassion on sinful people. Mm. And it's his compassion that triumphs over his righteous anger yeah. at the cross. And, you know, that cost Jesus everything for that to be the outcome. Yeah. But, you know, I think the cross is one of the classic places to go to see... For sure the tender heart of God, both in Jesus and in the Father. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess what are the kind of implications? I guess, okay, here we go. What do you think, like how much do you think our culture is actually still uh, affected by this kind of pushing down our emotions type thing? Because I don't know, a big one that comes to my mind, and I'm sure it happens for everyone to some degree, um, but men, like 
it's been hugely ingrained that you just you, you're not meant to be emotional at work. You're not meant to be emotional in front of your children. That type of thinking, uh, like it still seems to be clearly in our in our world. And you think of uh, at work or progress, and that uh, I guess a move, uh, not necessarily always bad, but in, with, towards science and facts and facts don't care about your emotions type of thing, and it yeah. can't get in the way. Like, how much do you think it's still affecting us in, in everyday life? Oh, massively. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, you go back and think, well, why did God create us with emotions? They can be a real nuisance a lot of the time. And the more you appreciate how wonderful they are and how they connect you with God and connect you with other people, you, you value them so much more. Yeah. And you can see why God created us this way. Um, but the more we shut down that side of life and the more kind of severe... Yeah, what ends up happening is, is power becomes everything. Control, yeah. power, authority becomes everything. It infects the church terribly. Um, but we're, we're, just, we're just very emotionally unintelligent mm. and it means we're caught off guard really often by our emotions. Yeah. Either we're overwhelmed by the excessive nature of our emotions and we haven't been taught any way of kind of processing and negotiating our emotions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even the epidemic of domestic abuse, I think, in part comes back to how poorly we've taught men particularly to deal with anger. Mm. And I think it comes out in really terrible ways. Um, you know, the whole way we treat desire and sexual desire. Mm. Um, you know, our culture throws truckloads of pornography and... Yeah illicit sex at that whole issue so we we just don't learn how to manage that and we either get overwhelmed by it or um, we we struggle to uh, we struggle with intimacy because of our emotional unintelligence so yeah i think it's it's had terrible consequences in our culture and i think it's had pretty serious consequences in our church culture as well yeah for sure so what do you think this is quite a big question but um, and maybe you want to go into a specific example of emotion in our culture, but what do you think, uh, I guess, a biblical view of uh, becoming, like you say, uh, more emotionally mature? Actually, what does that road even look like? I think it's talking like this. Um, oh, so some of the places you'd begin to address it is preaching. So I think our preaching, a lot of Christian preaching has, has neglected the importance of emotion and the importance of connecting emotionally. Mm. You can understand that because people are really wary of being manipulative. So when we think yeah. of emotion, we often think of emotional manipulation and you might be aware of preachers who are very emotionally manipulative yeah. and that sucks. Nobody wants that. Um, and then you hear other preaching that's very sentimentalistic. So there's never really a lot of content. They don't tell you much about God, but they, you know, I grew up in a church for quite a few years I went to a church where every sermon was God loves you and I love you etc etc it didn't really get past that message and it, you know every week it was like one of those kind of greeting card messages every sermon was mm. like it was like eating too much white chocolate you know you get that sick taste in the back of your throat <laughs> from the preaching so I think there's a you know we could do a lot more to train preachers in connecting emotionally and that begins with connecting with the text yeah so what we i think what we tend to do with the bible is go to the bible for truth 
we're looking for that kernel of ideas, concepts, theology, so reasoning, and we throw away yeah. everything else. Yeah. You know, everything else is kind of chaff, yeah. and we kind of clear that away. We're often the way the story is told, or the language, the emotional language that's used, is as important to convey as the theological truth. Mm. And um, so I, you know, I get frustrated with preaching. I get frustrated with my own preaching that I have trouble kind of engaging in that way emotionally. But I think we we suffer a lot from um, preaching that doesn't really engage at that level. Yeah. Because I, I think people just wouldn't know what to do with it. Um, do you think that permeates probably the time that we would personally spend in, in the word if, if we're in a culture that really values facts, reasoning? That, that, that's always bad, but it's what I'm kind of hearing you say, and it's almost really balanced the scales, the importance of learning. It's the importance of getting the pure facts, the underlying principles, rather than it might be a mix of actually yeah. there's emotion yeah, in no. there and that's that actually complements them yeah, both. I think the same thing can infect your, your quiet times that you go there um, wanting to learn content, wanting to learn ideas, mm. doctrine, and you can really neglect to be drawn into the way the story's told and the emotional dimension. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know that you know, the whole idea of uh, dogs can hear whistles at a certain frequency that humans <laughs> yeah. can't hear. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like the emotional content of scripture is a bit like that for a lot of us who've been trained theologically. It can be a bit of a pitfall of having been trained theologically because you get so drawn into that culture of abstraction and ideas yeah. and doctrine. Mm-hmm. And don't, don't even, I'm a Bible college principal, so I'm not talking against that stuff. But if you don't marry it, if you don't preserve the kind of emotional dimension, yeah, you know, there used to be a time when, when I when I was a kid, um, and it was a different tradition. It was an Anglican. I grew up in an Anglican church, but we'd read a psalm every Sunday. You mm. would not have church without reading without through a psalm. psalm. Yeah, and um, you know these days uh, we'll tend to keep the Bible reading to almost the bare minimum only what the guy's going to preach on. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the Psalms are an absolute key to kind of keeping this stuff on board. Yeah, yeah. Because the Psalms model for us pouring out our heart to God and assuming that God cares deeply about our grief, our anxiety, our fear, uh, that kind of thing. Oh, anxiety is a classic. There was a Christian book years ago. I won't name the book. Some of you might have read it. But it was doing all the rounds of Bible study groups and everybody was reading this book. And um, in it, it said that anxiety was sin. Oh, wow. And I said, well, you know, anxiety's re- refusal to trust God. You only feel anxious because you don't trust God. And so anxiety is sin. And I just... <laughs> I can't tell you how angry I got when you just knew that Christians were being told that. Because, yeah. you know, I've got a lot of friends who struggle with anxiety as a clinical issue, you know. It's a, it's a it's huge a problem issue. in our society. Yeah, huge sure. issue. Yeah. And I think, um, well, I, I think it's just not true. Jesus is clearly anxious in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. Paul tells you that he got anxious about the churches in 2 Corinthians 11, mm. talks about sending Epaphroditus to the Philippians to relieve his anxiety. So, you know, the... Paul, the apostle, and Jesus himself are very open about experiencing anxiety. Yep. There's just times when that's appropriate. Yeah. Because uh, God's in control, but we're not. And there's just that gap sometimes yeah, leads yeah. us anxious. So I think labelling that as sin is one of the most unhelpful 
things we can do. Yeah. The whole thing of going there's bad emotions and good emotions. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask next. Like how do you yeah, navigate, sure. um, I guess, uh, you can go into anxiety. I had a question on like when you're feeling sad or depressed, like is there actually a time to feel anxious? Is there a time to feel sad? And like how do you na- navigate that? Is uh, is there such a thing as good emotion and, and bad emotion in your thinking or is or do we need to reshape the question? Yeah, I think we do need to reshape our language. I think... Um, and this is where someone like Aristotle was a bit of a genius. I found his stuff really, really helpful. So while there's some aspects of some of these great thinkers that I'd want to push back against and question, sometimes they say really brilliant things. And, and he, he just said, look, there's an appropriate emotion in a particular response and there's appropriate amount of that emotion. Mm. So anger, uh, why do I get angry? Um, I get angry because I see a situation where I believe someone is being treated unjustly. I um, think that that isn't right and they should be treated better than that. And I am angry to motivate me to do something about that. Mm. So a classic situation I can think of was when a young girl in youth group came and told me that she'd been sexually abused for 18 months by the youth group leader. Gosh. And um, I had to go around and... Uh, yeah, I had to kind of deal with that situation and contacted uh, government agencies, talked to them about what we should do, how we should respond. And I went round to talk to him, the youth leader. Mm. And, um, you know, I look back and go, wow, how did I get the, the courage to do that and take the action that I took? And I think my anger in the situation really motivated me and really drove me and energised my response. Yeah. So I look back on that and think... Yeah, you that's think a situation it was a where thing. I can really see the value of anger. And yeah. if, if, if a youth group girl comes and tells me that and I don't get angry, I think there's something really wrong with me. Oh, for sure. If I don't get really angry, there's something wrong with me. You can't just be neutral about something but, you know, like I'm, that. I'm just as capable of getting angry just because someone is going slow in the lane in front of me and I'm, you know, I've left home <laughs> late. I've left home late and I'm... And that's clearly their fault. I want them know. to get out of the way and they're doing something to obstruct me. <laughs> and my ministry, God should strike them. You know, I'm, I'm capable of getting just as angry about something like that. So, so it's think, appropriate and inappropriate use I think of anger. Whole, I think that insight, that's one of the most valuable insights I think I got from my research was that the core of any given emotion is a, a belief about the situation. Mm. And that's really what makes the emotion that particular emotion. So how is anger different from jealousy? You know, what goes on in my brain, the adrenaline that's released and the blood that goes to my face and all those kinds of physiological responses. Um, You know, there's a lot of overlap with the different emotions. But, Mm. um, you know, jealousy is different from anger because jealousy has got different set of belief. Mm. So with jealousy, it's there's something that belongs to me and is rightly mine and someone has taken it. And jealousy is what motivates me to defend yeah. what belongs to me. Yeah. And God, the Bible celebrates God's jealousy mm. for his own name, his jealousy for his own people. Yeah. There's times when Israel only has hope of a future because of God's jealousy for his own name. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah, it's a really appropriate thing. Yeah. You know, he redeemed Israel, she belongs to him. And now she's chasing after idols and other gods. Yeah. It's only right that God protects 
his entitlement to his people. Yeah. And it carries over into marriage as well. You know, there's appropriate place for jealousy in marriage. And yet at the same time, you know, jealousy attached to the wrong things and the wrong relationships uh, can wreak havoc and often lies behind the domestic abuse that we talked earlier. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really you've got to, you've got to assess it. any emotional response. You've got to assess it in a particular context and in a given set of, you know, there's some situations where hate is a much more appropriate response than love. You yeah, know, when, like, I, when I'm thinking about my own that? sin, it's much more appropriate to hate yeah. my sin than to love my sin. Mm. So you can't go hate is categorically wrong. There is a place for it. And, you know, God hates sin. Yeah. That's abundantly clear. So. Yeah. Now, I was going to ask you about that particular type of emotion of hate. Like, is there actually a, a point, you've named a couple just then, but is there actually a point uh, where hatred is actually okay? Because, like, you you basically just said it. Like, I got, uh, I grew up thinking that it wasn't. Like, every every kind of uh, a definition of it or every circumstance um, that it's it's not right. So I wondered if you could speak into that a yeah, little bit. Yeah, I think hate and anger are pretty similar in that, very, very rarely does the Bible say that they're acceptable in the human sphere. Mm. Yeah, certainly Amos will talk about how God hates Israel's worship because she turns it on on a Sunday and, you know, is full on with their singing and their worshipping and their sacrificing. But during the week, they just go out and sin and rebel again. You know, God says, I hate your worship feasts. I hate your festivals. Mm. So God's quite prepared to use that language. And there are situations where God hates the sinner in the Bible as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, human hatred and human anger very, very rarely serve God's purposes because we're sinful and we're much likely to be petty or selfish when we have those kinds of responses. Yeah. And, and unlike God, we don't know all the facts. Yeah. So I can think of situations where, you know, I've been really angry about something or even hated um, something that somebody's done, um, you know, and that's spilled over into hating the person. And then subsequently found out that I didn't have the full story and I jumped to a premature conclusion. Mm. And, and, you know, that's what sets God apart from us. God always knows all of the facts. Yeah. So um, his responses are always well-informed and yeah. proportional and perfect. Yeah. Where my anger is often askew. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, I've probably got like maybe one or two more before we do some... The, the only emotion, you know, if, if you're sort yeah. of talking about... You know, are there good and bad emotions? Again, I want to argue that, no, there's just appropriate responses to different situations. Yeah, and, okay, that makes sense. You know, grief is often described as a bad emotion, which is classic carryover from Greek culture. And none of us enjoy grief because it's such a painful emotion. But, you know, when you've lost someone you love, uh, it's absolutely appropriate. Yeah. And grieving over sin is absolutely appropriate. Yeah. And it, you, ought to, you ought to grieve strongly in some situations. So, but the one, well, interesting, the two emotions that kind of stand out for me is envy is never regarded as, as a good thing anywhere in the Bible and anywhere in the philosophical traditions either. Really? Yeah. But envy is like jealousy, but we often confuse envy and jealousy. Envy is where I want something that isn't rightfully mine. So somebody has something, it gives rise to covetousness. But it's where something has something that's legitimately theirs and I just don't like them having it or I would really like it and I envy them. Mm. And that's never okay. 
Yeah. And then um, in terms of God, nowhere in the Bible does it describe God as being afraid. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. So that they, they're the two that stand out for me as yeah. kind of not fitting that general description that we just yeah. talked about. Yeah, okay. That's really interesting. I wanted to get to – it's on a similar vein, but it seems to me like we've come from a, a long line of history in a way that's kind of been about suppressing emotion or it's not helpful, that type of thing. But I've been reading this uh, book by a guy you know, Carl Truman, called yep. The Triumph of the Modern Self. And basically what he's talking about is almost this sway to an opposite direction in a way and a push that way where uh, life is uh, – the most authentic self is about like expressive, expressive individualism. It's just like I feel this and therefore – I'm going to do it. I shouldn't have to suppress my emotions. I shouldn't have to suppress how I feel because that's the true me. I need to be the true inner me. So, uh, and I guess like a, uh, an outworking might be, and I guess if you approach relationships, like you said a little bit before, is that like if everything's about me and how I should act upon my emotions, act upon my feelings and what I want, if you approach into a relationship and that's your mindset, you're probably going to churn through so many relationships because somebody's just going to get boring or they're not going to be able to fulfill you um, and then you'll, you'll move on and the breakdown of, of that. Uh, just as an example, but like with with your view, like how, how do you even approach that type of philosophy in uh, like what's what's a good emotional uh, maturity look like yeah, in that? Sure. I, like just so uh, I'm, what I'm thinking in the back of my head is that it's so loud in our culture. I, I see it everywhere. It's just like act upon everything that you feel and, and all of your emotions and do not suppress it. So like what would you say to that? Is there dangers in, in that? What's a healthy way of looking yeah, at and it? Yeah, I, I often think the way that, you know, that what I've already described in that kind of traditions that, suppress emotion is a reaction against the danger of that. And that was that yeah. was a real problem in the ancient world. The gods were portrayed that way. Um, the Greek gods were portrayed as chucking hissy fits, losing their temper, getting randy, um, coming down to earth to, yeah. uh, you know, grab women, you know, that kind of stuff. That was, that was what, you know, even the Greek philosophers reacted against those kinds of descriptions of the gods. Yeah. Uh, Again, it's consequence of our fall into sin, uh, emotion, um, like every aspect of our life, emotions affected by sin. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the way that God's wired us at creation, the wiring gets messed up and um, different wires get attached in the wrong places and our emotional responses can become really dysfunctional. Um, so there's no way I'm kind of going, oh, just follow your emotion. Your emotion is the true guide. That's your true self. I think that's really dangerous. And again, you need to go to, back to the Bible to kind of guard against that. Sure. Um, for me, um, uh, yeah, as a result of the sinful disordering of our emotions, we can turn our emotions into idols. Yeah. I can think of a lot of people who've thrown in their Christian faith because of a relationship that they were drawn to, a desire that they had usually for an unbeliever that overwhelmed their commitment to Christ and their commitment yeah. to Jesus. But they're absolutely convinced it's the right thing to do because they feel it so strongly. Yeah. So I've seen that wreak havoc and, you know, churches, this is often what tears people apart is, um, you know, anger that's handled badly, jealousy, yeah. resentment is often what divides churches and, you know, these historic 
kind of fault lines exist in a church because these things have never been addressed, addressed properly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the other extreme and there's enormous danger in it and our culture is very much, you yeah. know, parts of our culture are very much drawn to that. Yeah. I don't think there's any clearer place you see that than in sexual expression in yeah. our culture where whatever you want, just go for it. Um, so, yeah, enormous danger in that. It's a form of idolatry. Yeah. Um, and, again, you've got to come back to the Bible and go, well, I, I don't think the answer is, oh, therefore emotions cannot be trusted. You must be suspect of them all the time. Yeah. And we ought to try to remove them altogether. Yeah, yeah. That's what and I'm that, trying and to guard against. But the, the yeah. extreme that Truman's warning against is, is very easily where we end up. Yeah. If we don't develop emotional intelligence, we don't yeah. talk about it, process it, work out how to respond to situations. Unless we learn how to approach emotions in a way that reflects the character of God mm. and Jesus and the way he related to people, then we're left even more vulnerable to the appeal of those emotional impulses. Yeah, for sure. So I think there's, you know, there's a balancing thing that's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I can see the danger that he's talking about and it's a real problem. Yeah, you got to... Be cautious of, of the pendulum swing between the two. And I, I think what comes to mind for me is actually just have grace for each other, is that we're, we're like we, we do have our wires kind of in the wrong spot sometimes, so we're going to make mistakes. So we like some things are obviously significant. I'm not saying every every emotional type damage is, is really easy to get over, but I think it's having, do you think there's a, a place for having just grace for each other whilst we navigate uh, finding uh, a healthy emotional kind of view on life? Yeah. I think, you know, grace is the classic expression of God's tender-hearted compassion. Uh, that, you know, God deals with us in his grace because of that tender heart that lies behind. So mm. we experience his grace as the way that he relates to us. When you start asking, well, where does that come from? Where does that spring from? It's the very nature of God's heart is towards tender-hearted compassion. Yeah. So, you know, one of my favourite moments in the Bible is where, um, uh, you know, Moses has been up on the mountain, Israel have sinned, kind of restored the covenant. And in his, you know, uh, Exodus 34, God takes Moses aside and goes, I'm going to reveal myself to you now. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you what it looks like to live in a relationship with me. Uh, it's a real kind of read my lips kind of moment in the Bible. Mm. And, uh, you know, what does is, what is the Lord say? The Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, mm. bounding in steadfast love. So when God kind of reveals himself and explains, this is the basis on which you will need to relate to me. Yeah. He makes it really clear that that will involve his compassion. Yeah. Also his anger. We'll have to reckon with God's anger. Yeah. His grace and mercy, that kind of thing. So you know, I think it's, it's, it's actually made clear in a whole range of passages that we have to wrestle with this side of God. Mm. And I, you know, I don't want to turn this into the ultimate side of God and play down yeah, yeah. theological and other categories. There's another um, pendulum you can it's do. Just, you know, we need to have a well-rounded understanding yeah. of who God is, and the only way to get that is to keep going back to Scripture. Yeah. The way we imagine God will never be as profound and as rich and as surprising as the God that's revealed himself in Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems just to kind of wrap up and um, before we go into some Q&A, it seems to me that it's really important that we know, uh, we, we desire to know 
God's emotion. We know, we desire to know and, and, and feel his love in a very real way because uh, I think of like the, the greatest commandment of loving him um, and being able to love him and, and being able to love others. And, and how, in my mind, how could you show love to other people if you don't know love yourself, if you don't yeah, know yeah. God yourself? And again, Ephesians 5, <laughs> 1 and 2 is worth looking up when you go away um, just to sort of follow this stuff up. But, uh, you know, it says imitate God. Yeah. And it's come just after it said, be tender-hearted towards each other, um, put away anger and ma- uh, put away malice and anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Yeah, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and, and then uh, in Ephesians five one says, imitate God as dearly loved children, mm. love one another deeply from the heart, kind of thing. And yeah. that's you know, and that's the logic that I kind of came to in the end it, yeah in the end i discovered after doing a phd that it was all there in ephesians 5 1 and 2 that it, you know it all comes ultimately from the character of god and the way that he's loved us yeah and once you've experienced that love it ought to transform you to love with that same kind 100%. of tender-hearted compassion yeah yeah it seems super essential and that's why i really wanted to pick on this topic because to actually understand more and more I don't even know if we'll completely understand it until we're face to face with him, but to understand it more and get that healthy view of emotion and and particularly God and how he's wired us and how he shows that seems really important for how we experience it, but how we, how we show it to other people. But thank you, Richard, for, uh, uh, we're going to do some Q and A in a second, but thank you for coming and talking about that. That was really awesome. I had a question for you. Um, how can us, the, the listeners support you? Like, is there any way that we can support you? Yeah, come to college and study. Um, <laughs> that'd be really good. Love to see you. Uh, or any college. Go to Malian if you need to. But uh, no. Uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, equal time to answer and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, it's a good college, Malian. Yeah. Yeah. Think about going there. Uh, I know you're yeah, not I talked to Matt Malian. about BST. You know, we've we done good by Matt. Uh mm. Look, I, I think just be praying for the ministry of the college. Um, uh, yeah, COVID's knocked us around a little bit. As sure. you know, we've got a very strong emphasis on uh, learning in community. Yep. So we emphasise people living on campus and, you know, even as a commuter, you enjoyed a whole richness of fellowship Oh, for sure. Even if it took me an hour, an hour and a quarter to get there from yeah, Logan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I don't remember you complaining that much. But anyway, you know, once you got there, you I were did. drawn into that kind of <laughs> yeah, wider yeah. fellowship. And that, you know, that that got yeah, challenged awesome. by COVID and now in the kind of in-betweenness that we're living with where some people are face-to-face, some people are on Zoom, and that can change depending on lockdowns and things. Yeah. We're not yet having morning tea the way we used to. We're not having lunches the way we used to. We're kind of edging our way back there. Um, but just to pray for the college and yeah, my leadership sure. of the college. Yeah. And the people will be really well looked after and that the stuff I've talked about tonight would be modelled at the college. Yeah. So that people are experiencing that kind of love and mm. people's commitment to them and that that will then shape them and how they approach their ministry, that as yeah. they go out from the college they'll want to love with that kind of tenderheartedness. And it won't just be a theological idea, but they would have experienced it um, in their time. So that's how I want to lead the college. Obviously, when I get tired and distracted, 
you move away from that and you don't prioritise the things that you really need to. Hmm. But, um, you know, if you prayed for my leadership of the college and uh, all of the staff and faculty, that'd be, that'd be a fantastic yeah, way to no encourage problem. us. Yeah, no, that'd be my great pleasure. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, if you've enjoyed this and you're watching this at a future time, please like and share this if you found it helpful. Um, and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram or even on Spotify and Apple uh, Podcasts now. Um, we just really want this to benefit as many people as possible. Um, so your support would mean the world to us. So we're actually going to be going uh, and just having a, a five-minute break break now if you want to go to the toilet uh, get a drink you want to put in your questions and then we're going to uh, quiz uh, Richard or the Gibbonator on on that uh, after this <laughs> <There you are. laughs>